CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city, baby. The Grind is Toronto's new politics and culture magazine, available in print for free at your local bookstore, coffee shop, bar, and in the TTC. The summer issue, our fifth, is out now. It has coverage of Toronto's mayoral election, event listings, and lots more. If you dig what we're doing, please consider donating so The Grind can continue to grow and improve. We're aiming to raise $25,000 by the end of July. Visit www.thegrindmag.ca for more info, including a map of where to find a copy. Brothers and sisters, cats and chicks, Clayton Book Realty is here to give you the deal of the century, daddy. It's time to get down to it. Clayton, what are you doing? Don't you know I do all the screaming around here? <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dr. Meth. I just get so excited. I love your show and CIUT so much. There's no other radio station like it. Well, that is true, but you know what you have to tell our listeners is pretty amazing as well. Absolutely. Listeners, when you buy, sell, or lease your next property with me, Clayton Book, broker with PSR Brokerage, I'm donating 5% to CIUT on your behalf. Find out more at movewithclay.com. From the roots up, CIUT 89.5 FM, Toronto. Good morning and welcome to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We've got a great show ahead for you, so thanks for tuning in. I have a special guest who is usually on the other side of the glass, but has graciously agreed to join me on this side with the microphones. Riley Mormon, thank you for joining the show. You're very welcome. Yeah, I've actually migrated from this side of the glass, <laughs> thrown Alice Boyle into the hot seat, and now I'm with the mics. Oh, and Alice is doing such a great job. We're so grateful. Thanks, Alice. And Alice is actually going to be with us. Uh, next week as we talk about student journalism too. So we'll get to hear her thoughts and her voice. So today we're talking about student revolutions and this is your specialty and we're going to talk a little bit about the at the end about how you have a great new show coming up that's going to highlight that. Yeah, I have a new show specifically about student revolutions and how student activism can actually achieve results in universities and in public policy. Wow. So it's great that it's a radio show, but maybe you should make a how-to book as well. Well, you know, like steal this book or... I'm just saying, it's <laughs> put the transcriptions, publish it. <laughs> it's not a terrible idea. I might do that. I like it. I like it. Um, and so a little bit later, I want to talk about how I was involved in the Industrial Workers of the World back in the 80s, affectionately known as the Wobblies, and we had mimeographed pages of how to do things, but I'm sure that yours will be much more informative. <laughs> All right, so today you should also know, folks at home, that we are in your car. We This is the first episode uh, in three uh, a series of three. Today, student revolutions. Next week, next time, we're going to be talking about the role of religion 
in revolutions, both in provoking them and suppressing them. And the third and final episode in our series will be the role of humor in revolutions. Now, humor, as we all know or should know, can be both an oppressive and a liberating agent in society. So we're going to explore that too. Great. Okay, I want to start off, Riley, by asking you to guess what I got for my birthday when I was six years old. When you were six, this would have been what, like don't 2006? Even, don't even, don't even. <laughs> this was in the early 30s. <laughs> Emma Goldman was at the party. I'm, hmm, I'm Okay, I'm just going to tell you. Okay. I got a paid membership in the Communist Party of Canada. Incredible. Yes. That's an incredible <laughs> gift for a six-year-old. It was a little bit disappointing. I was hoping for Polly Pockets, but <laughs> it was nonetheless an influential present in my life. So let's start off. Uh, you know, revolution is part of our life, uh, whether we know it or not. So tell me, what, what do we need to know about revolutions in general? Well, revolutions in general, they're characterized by a few things. So there has to be a movement to not, it doesn't necessarily need to overthrow the entire system, but it needs to work outside of the boundaries of the current system. So it can't be through a court case or a Supreme Justice okay. decision. That's not like the not civil rights. System. Yeah, that's not really a revolution. Right. When, if you're thinking about that classic example of Martin Luther King Jr., not the Martin Luther, but Martin Luther King. Well, Martin Luther was kind of revolutionary too, but we'll talk about that next oh, time. Oh, <laughs> he absolutely was because he worked outside of the system, but he worked within the system and revolutions are more of a outside the system and they don't necessarily need to have incredibly big goals. You can have revolutionary ideals that are very small and narrow-minded. If I was to start a revol revolution in Toronto right now, it would be to add bike lanes to every street in this city. And it's not gonna happen because 311 has blocked me. Oh no. I guess I've reported too many potholes, <laughs> but it's just, a revolution is in its necessity is people being fed up with the system not working and looking to improve their lives by working outside of the system. Okay, so let's drill down using your example. So 311 has blocked you. Uh, so that means that maybe you can't work within the system. So would a revolution uh, involving creating bike lanes be going in the middle of the night and just getting some paint slapped on the road? See, that is exactly like what it action. would involve. This is something I've already done. I will not say where because I do not want the police to find me because <laughs> the police in the city are very scary. And we'll talk about the police a little bit later. We should say our studio is in Bowmanville, Ontario, just in case they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> My house is actually the one beside Doug Ford. So if you get him to, that would be fantastic. Anyway, um, that's a concept known as tactical urbanism. And okay. it's tactical because it's people and individual units of a group. In this case, it's tactical because it's trying to emulate revolutions like the Russian Revolution, but on a super small scale. So just adding crosswalks where you need them or adding bike lanes. Right. And this is something I've done on this campus because we'll talk about this a little bit later too, but our campus authority here is incredibly ineffective at times and outright hostile to improvement at other times. Wow, and that's the whole thing, right? When the system is suppressing any you know, way of changing things, that's when people start to go outside the system. All right, so what was the first revolution in history, would you say? Oh, that's a fantastic question. We probably don't have evidence of the first revolution, right. but 
the key contributing factors, and I'm gonna mention here that I am a major in history and anthropology, and these are concepts from that, um, is we talk about something, it's called uh, solidarity of means. Um, okay. And that's just when people live in the same way. And we have tons of evidence throughout all of uh, prehistory, and that's not a word I like, like to use because it just makes people confused. But we have lots of evidence that when people live in the same manner, they find solidarity with each other, and there is very little conflict. It's only once we started to develop agriculture and started to settle in, it doesn't necessarily, not necessarily like permanent places, but we started to come back to the same places over and over again, and wealth inequality started growing, that's when revolutions happen. So we have revolutions that date all the way back to like 3,000 or 4,000 BC in Egypt, of right. all the all the slaves because it's slave isn't like it's not like chattel slavery it still absolutely was slavery and I want to make that clear if there's any armchair historians listening who oh the the pyramids weren't built by slaves they were paid yeah they were kind of forced to go there though and that's actually a very interesting example because there's a lot of theorization that the pyramids were built because the way the crop cycles work in Egypt is that you do a lot of planting and you do a lot of harvesting. But for the rest of the year, because the ground and the soil is so fertile, you don't actually need to do that much. And it was used as a way to keep people essentially busy so that they couldn't think about, oh, why does the pharaoh get gold and copper and all these nice fancy jewels and a hundred concubines or whatever? It was used to keep them busy. Right, right. One of the tools of the empire to ensure that there isn't time or energy to exactly. be fighting back, fighting back. Okay, so and I think that that particular revolution might be something we can talk about in the role of religion, the episode we we uh, have yeah. Uh, next time. Yeah. So okay. So moving forward, what is the earliest revolution that we think of as you know being influential in in history? Well, it really depends on how you define revolution, because there's lots that have kind of been revolutions and I'm not going to say I'm an expert on this because I'm not I try to know my best and lots of people will disagree with me on this right um revolution itself is a fairly modern phenomenon okay. just because there's lots of people like 99% of people who have ever lived never knew how to read or write right. or were involved in the governance of themselves by any means they were people who never left 20 kilometers outside of where they were born and who most likely, this isn't to say they didn't have fulfilling lives, but who most likely were not involved in any sort of power structure above somebody else. Right. And I think that there's also the, you know, we think about having knowledge of what's going on elsewhere, right? To, if you only know what's going on right in your village, then it's it, difficult to imagine exactly. uh, living differently. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's still a thing we see today. It is. Of people who are just fundamentally opposed to revolution, be that because of their politics or their religion or because they have material interest invested in continually exploiting people, the only news and the only media they will show them of other places is when revolutions fail and of how terrible other places can be. Oh, you should be so lucky you live here in Toronto. What a diverse and nice city. Ignore that we're killing tens of homeless people every week for the entire year. Ignore that you're being absolutely extorted out of your rent money by landlords who you will probably never meet. It's a 
system used to keep people in their place and just to keep them, the most important part is to keep people preoccupied because right. even if they aren't wealthy, even if they aren't fed, when people have nothing to do, and we've seen this time and time again throughout history, if you're in a siege and there's nothing to do and you're bored and unhappy, people will take to the leaders and eat them or throw them over the walls or do any sorts of things. It's the most important thing for any status quo government to stay in power is to keep people preoccupied and busy doing things they don't like. Absolutely. And we see that throughout history. I mean, I think we saw that during the Ottawa convoy, uh, which we could talk about as well, because that, in a way, was a failed revolution, I think. Yeah, it's in, it absolutely was. Yeah. And there was a lot of the people there weren't revolutionary. But a lot of them were trying to get people uninstated by the governor general, which is absolutely working outside of our legal system with zero legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I met someone yesterday who was there. I just met them in the village. I live in a small village in, in mm -hmm. rural Ontario. And he, he actually came over because he used to live in our house. So he was telling us his life story. Very interesting man. And then he mentioned that he was in Ottawa. So I asked him to share the experience, what it was like. And the words that he used were things like he said, the phrases were, I never felt like I belonged before. I never felt like I was loved before. People were giving me food. People were giving me hugs. And so, and also that he had something to do because he had nothing else to do, but there he was busy. So, I mean, I felt that that for me was a real insight into why people do um, challenge the system, even in ways that I don't personally think of as, you know, the revolutionary in the right yeah. way, right? Okay, so we've got the hallmarks of a revolution. So there, I understand, are five main revolutions in the West that everyone should know about. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, see, that's that's also a debatable thing. It goes, okay, good, it, sorry, good. It's just, it goes back to the, what was the <laughs> earliest revolution? Yeah, yeah. Because you'd have lots of people saying, like, uh, like, the Roman Republic overthrowing the kingdom was a revolution. But it really wasn't. Uh, I tend to think that revolutions by aristocracy that actually don't tend to change the systems of government very much aren't really revolutions. They're revolts, for sure. But there should be an important distinction made there that people who are in power before, if they stay in power after, it's not really a revolution. And this isn't to gatekeep revolutionaries or revolutions. Right. But it is an important clarification to make that not every tax revolt was a revolution in and of itself. And people being unhappy doesn't necessarily lead it to be like a revolutionary government. If, if they find a very similar mode of government as before. It may have been a revolution as for the 30 minutes that it happened, but once it settles back into its own patterns and it finds that equilibrium of governance, it doesn't really, it's more of just a reaction to bad policies that governments have put in place, if that makes sense. That does, yeah. Friends, we are here at CIUT 89.5 FM. It's the Radical Reverend Show, and I'm here with my guest, Riley Mormon. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think that maybe we need to still like refine this definition of revolution. So, for example, uh, I think about, you know, powers that take over, you know, like the Roman Empire's example, yeah. you know, of course. Uh, and the, it was revolutionary in terms of turning everything upside down, but that's not a revolution because it's not. So is there something about the underclass gaining more access 
to power that is part of a revolution? It's, I think it's fundamentally just the same power brokers can't be in the same position they were beforehand. So the Roman Empire is a really good one because people forget this. And a big problem with this revolutionary thing is people like to classify things as revolutions without actually just doing the research that they should be doing. And that's armchair history is a whole other topic. But, yeah, and academic yeah, defining is yeah, also what, exactly. yeah. And I don't want to get super bogged down in the, you know, the very <laughs> so, yeah, stereotypical. So we're not going to be a gatekeeper. Yeah. We're not going to be, you know, an oppressive academic, exactly. uh, conservative. But what we're looking for is, yeah, so what are the essential, well, there's another academic turn, what are the necessary and essential components of a revolution? Yeah, so it just needs to be working outside the system okay. with a different form of governance afterwards. It needs to be people who weren't in power, and now have positions of power. So Castro coming to power, he was a student, he was not in any position of power beforehand, that's a revolution. The Roman Empire taking over from the Roman Republic took the consul, made him an emperor, which was just a title, and the Senate, which a lot of people don't remember, like they think of Caesar and dissolving the Senate and oh, he's dictator for life. The Senate was still around into the 1400s AD. It survived 1,500 years of complete empire rule. Well, Christianity helped that a little. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's the same people had the same positions in the same government and still had quite a bit of influence. Right, right, good. Okay, so the revolution, so we think about the uh, French Revolution, the American Revolution, Russian Revolution, Chinese Revolution. You want to give us a couple minutes? Like, can you, can you, make us, you know, armchair experts in three minutes about these revolutions? Yeah, so I think some of the really important revolutions, the French Revolution was obviously very important. And it was one of the first ideological revolutions that happened, and wasn't just a reaction to policy. So the English Civil War was absolutely a revolution. But it was much more a reaction to policies put in place. It didn't have something it was working towards, it had something it was working against. So it was going the opposite direction. But it was running backwards. It couldn't see where it was going. It just knew where it didn't want to be. So is that so? Then is that something a characteristic about whether or not a revolution? Ha- so I'm thinking about you know Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, like revolutions that have strategic leadership and and revolutions that don't. Like is that what you're kind of getting at there? Yeah, that's what a, it's. If there's a and it doesn't have to be fully unified, but if there's a semi-unified position of what the direction of a country or a people should be going for it. That tends to help it be defined as a revolution, and that tends to help revolution succeed just at all. Like the American Revolution at its beginning was a essentially a tax revolt by a bunch right. of wealthy aristocrats who were already in power and who were doing illegal activities like smuggling. And this is going to upset a lot of people. But if you actually look at – America has had a very, very – they've put a lot of effort into making it seem like a revolution when for most of the time and in the time, the the people there didn't feel it was a revolution. They felt it was, oh, so it's one colonial government and then the second colonial government. They were in the same spot, the same people. It was just that a bunch of uppity aristocrats didn't like paying taxes on their slaves. Right, so I think we're getting at something here. So there is revolutions, failed revolutions, and false revolutions, maybe, yeah. and debunking the myths of these. You know, it's part of the nationalism, part of the patriotic history. So it's important. So defining revolutions is important, maybe, to help us really see yeah. what was going on. 
And it's, it's, you don't even need to start with the definition. If you just look at the facts and actually you don't, not what you've been presented your entire life. If you just sit down and change a few words out, it's, you can really get a deeper understanding of a lot of these things. And I'd like to go back to the like five most important Western Let's do revolutions. Let's do it. Tell us about it. So French Revolution, incredibly important, first unified goal, first revolution to get essentially international condemnation for existing and had clear ideology and wanted to spread its revolutionary government to other countries. That's not like necessarily... The like the states, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not necessarily a key aspect of it, but... That is an aspect of revolution. So, so a we've teaching seen revolution, a mentoring revolution. Yeah, exactly. Revolutionaries want to see their revolution in other countries. Right. Um, so that's an important one. I would put the Haitian Revolution as incredibly important. Yes. That was yes. the first colonial nation to break away. Because I'm not counting the United States because those were not the native people there. And I know that the black slaves in Haiti were not the native people there. But they were certainly the most oppressed people there. And it was the best example of an underclass just by sheer force of will taking over a government and instituting their own. Let's stay on that for a bit more because, you know, I was shocked to learn some of the history of, of Haiti and the Haiti Revolution. So there were indigenous people, people that were brought over there by slavers, and they formed an incredibly uh, strategic and effective uh, organization to you know fight back and to gain some sort of independence and it took a lot of uh, money and armaments uh, the, the island was surrounded at one point by I think more than one country's um, military uh, it took yeah. a lot to, to, to crush it yeah you can really see how much of a revolution something is by how the other people in the region or in the world react to it. Haiti was the best example of every single nation involved in that region absolutely hated the Haitian Revolution and absolutely did their best to quash it. Yeah, it was ter they were terrified. It was horrible. Like yeah. Haiti, up until I believe it was the 1960s, was paying France reparations for all the property, the slaves yes. that they freed. Yes. It's... Haiti has been invaded, I believe, five or six times by the United States yeah. since the 1900s. Like, since 1900, they've been invaded countless times. They're still in incredible instability, and there's still people like Anthony Blinken, who's asking, essentially, Canada and the U.S. to invade Haiti again yep. to set up a better government yeah. for business interests. And we can have a whole episode on that, but like just seeing the, the implications of that unfortunately failed revolution is is really heartbreaking yeah so what else so we've got the french the english haiti yeah i would put the the spring of nations in so in 1848 i put that as an incredibly important revolution for all to follow because that was not the birth of nationalism but that kind of set the stage for how the world worked for the next many 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 years and any system that was opposed to that eventually fell and any system that embraced it has succeeded far beyond what it was before. We think of the governments that haven't fallen since like the 1800s. Right. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was famous for collapsing. Yeah. The Russian Empire was famous for collapsing. The German Empire was famous for collapsing. And each of these have collapsed and even if they didn't mean to have evolved more into what the people in that spring of nations revolution thought their country should be than what the existing government structures were. Right, right. 
so important to know. So very important to know. Thank you for explaining all that. In the second half, we're going to delve more into student revolutions and student revolutionaries, but it's good to have a little bit of background on revolutions in general. So we're going to take a quick break here. I, Riley, I know that you've picked some special music for this episode. Do you want to tell us about it? I have. This is an artist who, he's, he's famous, but he's someone who my family introduced me to and who I absolutely love. He speaks like a revolutionary, <laughs> and if you listen to the lyrics, you'll be inspired. His name is Michael Franti. Oh, yes. Michael's <laughs> Franti and the Spearhead. And Spearhead. And that's the music that'll be up next. All right. Enjoy. Oh my gosh, you're so fascinating, Riley. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show here at CIUT 89.5 FM. We're talking all things revolution. And in this half of the show, uh, Riley and I are going to be talking about student revolutions. So Riley, when I was a student, I joined the IWW, as I said before, became a regional steward in this, it was an international union, it started in 1905, Mm -hmm. um, and its initial goal was to join, have all unions join together in one worldwide union uh, to, you know, to increase the potential for impact. Um, But by the time I was involved with it, we really did feel that we were part of a revolution that was happening. And our work, uh, our specific work in Toronto was to help sex workers and bike messengers, uh, who was very anachronistic, bike messengers who were ubiquitous at the time in Toronto, um, organize themselves and to support them. And we worked uh, with, uh, you know, direct action, people who are using direct action environmentalism and the syndicalist anarchists. Uh, and it was a really exciting time. I'm, you know, and I, I've, you know, that I still have a heart for, for revolution. I'm so interested. How did you become interested and involved in, in the pursuit of changing the world through revolution? Well, I actually grew up, so I grew up in a far out suburb of Calgary. Okay. Um, Calgary, Alberta, which is famously, not Calgary itself, but Alberta is a famously conservative place. Right. Um, and I found I wasn't extremely interested there. And when I moved to Toronto for school, when I moved so I could go to U of T, I found myself with so many emotions about this place and just existing in this space that I had never felt before. Say more about that. So it's interesting. And I've had good talks with professor I know, uh, a professor I know from Calgary. Um, his name is Adam Zendel, and you should absolutely reach out to him. Okay. If you know, he's fantastic. Um, but... The way he phrased it was that in Calgary, there's nothing worth fighting for. That's how he felt. And that's not how I feel. Right. But I can understand why he felt that way. If you grow up in a suburb, it is so boring. You have your family. You have your friends. But when I moved here, I found that I actually felt so much love and admiration for this place that 
I felt like fighting for it. Right. Instead of just sitting by apathetically and watching it be boring. So interesting. I'm reminded of, you know, Emma Goldman's famous, famous line about if she can't dance, then it's not the revolution for her. So in the suburbs, was there no sense even fighting for a more a fuller life? Well, there was, but it's the further and further you get into those systems of power. And we yeah. will talk about this later, but uh, the way we design spaces absolutely enforces different ideas of power. Yeah. And in the suburbs, in that specific place, in when I grew up, there was no ideas of improving your community at all. There was no sense of community. I don't know my neighbors, and I know that my family did because they all moved there at the same time. Right. But I was born a little bit later. I don't know any of my neighbors. All of my school friends lived in the same neighborhoods as me. I had no idea where they lived. I had never been to their houses. And this is also an important thing that I think affected me more growing up in the digital age, which is that it's really easy to get caught up on technology, on the internet specifically, and see things you don't like and not do anything about it because you're so preoccupied. Right. With not necessarily a productive thing or a helpful thing, but just being on your phone, it's an easy escape from living in suburban hell, essentially. Right. Is that <laughs> right. you, if you just go on your phone, you don't have to think about it. You know, you just play video games and then you sure. don't have to worry about the fact that there's no community or that the infrastructure around you is crumbling sometimes. It's... Sure. And we can see how this, you know, geographic and social isolation and this digital preoccupation benefits the system, the oppressive system. Right? Exactly. Absolutely. The more you make people apathetic, the less likely they are to revolt. Right. And that's the, that is the challenge within any revolution is to, you know, change that apathy into revolutionary spirit. Okay. So you came to Toronto and did you know that you were going to study revolutions or is that something that... Piqued your interest here. I actually didn't know I was going to study revolutions at all. I've always been into history, and right. I like I represented Canada in like the twenty twenty one international Hi history Olympiad. So wow. I've, I've like I've always been into history. It's just been a big part of my life for a yeah. long time. But I didn't realize the sense of like community and community organizing, community betterment, until I came to U of T and I met friends and I've got. But like I have my own apartment now. I know my yeah. neighbors. And it's just this sense is something that I felt lacking my entire life. And I think if we go back to those convoy protesters, yes. I think that's where it's from. Yeah. Is that that's the spot they found it. I found it here. And it has the same root cause. And I'm not saying that like, well, I am saying that one of those is a healthier way to express it than the other. Because you should not occupy downtown Ottawa. That's a bad thing to do, especially if it's a vaccine mandates that's that's a very weird issue to get caught up on but that's that's a whole other thing is that uh, that but it might have been a catalyst for this yearning of community and a, a fuller life exactly that idea that we have that we're living unfulfilled lives where we have no agency and i think that's the important part we don't have agency over ourselves the way we live now right so it's like agency purpose community yeah. so you know for me when i study jesus you know who i believe was a revolutionary um, he came to bring abundant life to all and came to bring the message that everyone is entitled to that and that was about community agency and purpose yeah, yeah. exactly and the world that I'm fighting for is one in which we don't have people having to rush toward revolution or the Queen of Canada 
because they have those sense of purpose, contentment in their life, and a strong community around to support them. Oh, a worthy goal, a worthy goal. And I think we'll talk more about what that goal, like in terms of what abundant life means, uh, maybe even, you know, break down community purpose mm -hmm. and uh, and meaning. Um, agency, I mean. And But now tell me, so tell me everything we need to know about student revolutions. Oh, I You'd need an entire other show for that. Well, maybe we'll have one. Well, you have one. <laughs> oh. We've got one coming up. Okay, so tell us, you know, what we need to know about them. And then t talk to me, like, talk to me about here at UFT. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, so I wanted to start the show for a couple of reasons. One is that I find students have this very romantic image of the world. And when they go out into the real world, it is smashed by just the hammer of real life right. and the real systems they grow up in, not the ones they learn about, but how the real country and the place they live in operates. And that disconnect from what they think the world is supposed to be like and what the world is actually like breaks something in a lot of people, and specifically yes. when they're going into higher education. And it makes them angry. And I think that anger is justified and I think that righteous fury can be directed towards making the world a better place. And I think that's the most important thing is the fact that we can't make the world a better place ourselves is the worst part about living in this time and place specifically. If you try to improve the world you know, if you try to plant a garden, the police will ticket you. If you try to, I don't know, stand out and give free water to homeless people, shopkeepers will say, hey, we don't want that here. And then the police will ticket you. Well, in Barrie, they were trying to actually ban any people, anyone giving food or water to anyone in That's public areas. Exactly. That's. But it was it that failed, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's it rightly failed. But there is a culture and an ingrained motivation in a lot of people now to just not take responsibility for how they live and the spaces they inhabit. They'll litter on the street. This is, I'm not saying like, oh, this generation is the worst in history. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Let's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the way we live, our access to the internet, our ability to disassociate ourselves from the people who live around us. You can order meals online and you don't have to talk to the delivery driver. You don't have to talk to the chefs. You don't have to talk to the farmers. Our ability to dissociate from real life has made people incredibly upset and it's taken the responsibility of how they live off of them. And that's the greatest power in the world to say, oh, uh, I don't care. Like, it's not my responsibility. It's I'm not contributing anything to this. So why should I clean it up? So Riley, are you saying that in this particular age, because of the things that, you know, are just part of the air that we breathe that didn't exist, you know, even 20 years ago, let alone 50, 100 years ago, that revolutions have to look differently? I think they do. And I'm not saying in this in some like exceptional, it, we are smarter than everyone who's ever lived because we're not. Humans have always been the same sure. level of intelligence. And there is some defining characteristics about whatever the human spirit is, because I have no idea, <laughs> but that will make people uncontent with their spaces and want to have more power over them. But specifically right now in when and where we live, there is a difference that we need to account for and whether it's the internet, whether it's just having the status quo exist for so long, 
whether right. I'm not sure what it is. Well, but, I think a lot of it has to do with the, not believing that any change can be made, just like you described when you yeah. were in Calgary. So what lessons could students today learn from student revolutionaries in the past? Well, I want to connect them, the issues that they're passionate about now. I want to show them, at least in my show, that there has been people worried about these issues for a long time. You're not alone. Students have a long history of being concerned about the space they live in, their society, and wanting to fix it. Right. And I want to show them that they're not crazy and there is <laughs> yeah. things you can do to change it. It's like if you're mad about something, there is things you can do. Posting about it online, posting a black swear on Instagram for police brutality is not going to do anything. And right. the worst thing about it is that it makes people feel like they did They've do something. They've already done something. Exactly. Yeah. If you see yeah. all your friends saying like, oh, this is yeah. terrible, and, and then you don't do anything. They've done their work. They've done the work. Yeah. The amount of people I've, say, I've heard say, oh, there's so much trash in this city, and then just not clean up trash. That's like, you can clean up litter on the street. That's not something right. you have to wait for a city official to do. You can fill potholes yourself, but that's, that's another thing. That's Direct actually, action. That's Direct actually action. technically illegal, yeah. which is what I'm saying is that like the systems in power have tried to make it illegal and tried to dissuade us from taking action ourselves in that's order right. to fix our lives and to improve the lives of those around us. And I think a lot of the reasoning behind why they've tried to do this is a false sense of more intelligent, like they feel like they're more intelligent, like, oh, you should leave it to the professionals kind of thing. But they don't have to live in an environment where, okay, so there's all these potholes. John Tory doesn't drive over the, those streets. Right. He doesn't, he gets chauffeured so downtown on all the nice road. Exactly. There's a disconnect. It's people, the only people that have been allowed to shape our society and our spaces and the way we live for such a long time are not the same people who live the way we do. Right, right. So the you know the imbalance of power in the hands of the hegemonic elite is yeah. definitely a problem. Friends, if you're just joining us, if you're in your your living room or your car, we're so glad that you're here with us. This is the Radical Reverend Show on CIUT. 89.5 FM. I'm here with Riley, and we're also here with Alice, who is our incredible producer today. So I think that, you know, systems, we've, you know, we've learned that systems definitely protect themselves and increase their own power, for sure. So everything, you know, a system, whether or not you can trace it to individuals, I think a lot of time you can, certainly to particular classes or, mm -hmm. you know, groups, elite groups, these systems do everything possible to dissuade any individuals or community action groups from making change. Yeah. So, but you know, your your thesis is is that the, the major revolutions in the world and history have really started with students. So, you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? I yeah, I think students and a lot of them have started with students. This doesn't mean they're necessarily carried out or followed through by right, students. Right. Right. But there's this unique characteristic of not quite being in real life. Okay. But because. Being in university isn't real life. And if you think it is and you haven't lived outside of high school or university, you're kidding yourself. <laughs> Just wait a little bit. and. But this is a special time. Exactly. So it's a special the time. there's interest, there's you're, energy, there's, there's communal collaboration. Exactly. There's a power to feel like you can change things. You're not a kid anymore. You're an right. adult. You should be, theoretically, 
as powerful or as equal as any other member of society, and you're in the spot where you don't necessarily have to take care of the things that like real adults, I'm using air quotes in case you can't hear it over the air. <laughs> He's actually pointing at me. <laughs> that real adults do. You don't have to pay your mortgage yet. Yeah. You don't have to deal with all of those things. But you learn about these issues and you care about them and you try to fix them. And that's when a lot of these revolutions start. That's the inciting ember that it's not the kindling. It's not the problem. But Students have this incredible ability, and I wish we would use it more. Well, it's learning about it. Exactly. Right? It's that disconnect of thinking the world works one way, learning it doesn't, and you wanting to change it. Right, right. Maybe because we're naive and foolhardy and we're not worried about the consequences, but it could also be that we're idealistic and that we care about making the world a better place no matter what. Which are good things, yeah. you know, even though they're kind of vilified by, you know, the powers that be for sure. Yeah. So this, you know, having having hypocrisy, corruption, just plain wrongness revealed, like it's like a veil is taken off your eyes. All of a sudden you can see things that you couldn't see mm-hmm. before. Um, that's really happening because of what used to be called liberal education, right? Yeah. So is that a reason why we need to, you know, we all need to have an education like history so that we can yeah. see the patterns emerging and sociology and psychology to understand how groups and yeah. individuals operate. I don't even think it needs to be a formal education. Okay. I know one of the smartest people I know, he's a family friend in Calgary. He's so into history and he never went to university for right. it. He like he just couldn't afford to. He is one of the smartest people I have ever met in my entire life. And I'm, I can't emphasize it enough, is that you don't need to be in university to be a student. A student right. is a way of life and a way of thinking about okay. the world and learning. So when you say that students are often at the heart of revolutions, you're not necessarily talking about people who uh, are in third year history in an Ivy League uh, college or anything like that. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that. Yeah. It's, a lot of the time it is that because they have the opportunity to be there. But it's important to me to emphasize that all the people listening to this, you don't need to go back to university. Like, you don't need to pay for classes. To be honest, you can find those schedules online and just show up to class. Professors don't give a shit. And I know I'm not supposed to swear so much, but this is a spoken word program. So the CRTC can complain about it. And if they want to bring it up, I have an email they can talk to. (laughs) Speaking of emails... Studentrevolutions at gmail.com. I love that. Studentrevolutions at gmail.com. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So back in the day, we used to call it consciousness raising. So, you know, second and third wave feminists and certainly people in the black liberation movement. Um, you know, this idea that you, ha- you know, that there was a need to come together and to have some sort of learning about the patterns in history Uh, particularly around class and oppression, but also there's something about that being together and having those, you know, personal revelations uh, take place in a safe space where you can validate one another because these are things that are invalidated by the wider society. So does that happen? Is that something that happens on campus these days? Tell us. I think it does. I'm not sure that U of T is, uh, well, sorry, I am sure that U of T does not have an incredible spirit as a school it's a very apathetic school it's very large it's 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 large but it's it's more than that it's in the middle of a city the people here i find don't have as much community as places i've seen but there is that kind of spirit of being a student is being open 
to learning new things and changing your mind about issues. And that's the most important part is that you have to come into a space and it's hard. You have to be vulnerable. Right. And you have to accept that other people will know more than you. And it doesn't mean blindly taking anyone at face value and joining a cult and moving off to Utah. <laughs> but it does mean that you can accept that there are people in this world who know more than you and who you can learn from to just improve the lives of the people around you. Right, right. So today in the news is what's going on with the dissidents in Hong Kong. You know, very, very, you know, heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. Uh, so what's going on in Hong Kong is, you know, there's definitely, there are so many people who are risking so much to bring about a revolution that would, you know, change the lives of so many. Um, and I know many of those are students as well that yeah. have been doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I have friends who were in Hong Kong in the 2019, like, protests. Right. And have been there through the Umbrella Revolution. And a lot of it, it's not all students because it's no. never all students. That's no. not how it works. But the university classrooms were so often the epicenter of battles specifically because students either don't have anything to lose or are so passionate about issues that they're willing to galvanize themselves and those around them towards right. it. And that's actually going to be the first episode of my new show. Oh, wow. It's about the Hong Kong protests and revolutions and taking it all the way back through to the independence movements of when Hong Kong was occupied in the 1840s. Right. And what happened then? Well, the British have an incredible way of putting down dissidents. Um, Brutal. Yeah. And it's not something that's inherent to like the, the Britain man and their race of its superior. No, it's just that they have a lot of practice of shooting people who don't like them. And this isn't about British people now, except for some of them. Um, if, if you're from the UK and you're in a governmental position, stop. Think about right. what you're doing with your life. Reassess. Move forward. Anyway. Yeah, because um, perpetuating but, yeah, the implications of yeah, colonialism, right? Exactly. Yeah. But these, that's just, it's, an, it's something I'm trying to emphasize here is that the root causes are always the same. Like, it's this sense of, I'm, it can be, it's different from place to place, but it's a sense of, like, identity and the student revolutions that have happened in Hong Kong all the way going back to like the 1840s before when it was the Qing Empire controlling all of China. There was still these student movements that were broken up by the British and then later broken up by the International Colonial Police and then broken up by the British and then broken up by the CCP. And they've tried to go to different forms, but the root cause has always been the same. And you can try to treat symptoms but the best way to treat an illness is to treat the actual cause of the illness. Right. Yeah. Right. Unless you don't want to. Unless you want to. Unless you know, you're you making money. Keep, keep the society as sick as possible because yeah. you're benefiting yeah. from it, which is sick people can't the revolt. Case. Yeah, absolutely. So I heard that there's a reward of one million Hong Kong dollars has put on the heads of these dissidents. What do you think is going to happen? Are there's going to be continued revolutionary action in Hong Kong? With my experience with the people of Hong Kong, they will be up in arms for the rest of their right. entire history. Right. And I absolutely support them in that. So inspiring. And no matter how much the media portrays, and I'm not saying media like, I'm Alex Jones, the media is going to make the <laughs> fraud day or whatever. It's 
just the way that these things are portrayed a lot of the time you take officials and i'm saying officials in air quotes because the oppressive structures in place you take them at their word and not everyone else right so uh like a few years ago all the it was all the hong kong hong kong protests are over they're done forever they'll never be back because you're listening to the chinese government right and if you say it it'll make it true and it'll not necessarily for the rest of time. Propaganda is very effective, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, and it's a counter-revolutionary tool. Yeah. yeah. So if you work yeah. for the Toronto Star, also think about what you're doing. Because just reporting on something and the way you report it can actively make that thing true instead of working in a more fact-based and objective way. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that next week when we talk about student journalism and its impact not only on the campus in which it resides but on the larger community. We absolutely are. All right, this is the Radical Reverend Show on COT eighty nine point FM. We've got a few minutes left, Riley, and I want to know. I want you to to give us your predictions. What is the future of student revolutions? Hopefully, it's more optimistic than the past, and I I think it will be. My predictions are almost never correct, and I'm incredibly bad at predicting things. But if my experience with humanity holds up, people will still try to work for the betterment of their fellow man, their fellow woman, and their fellow anybody. People. Exactly. They'll try to work for the betterment of others. They'll find community, and they'll try to improve the situation they're in. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we can see that around the world and on campuses. I mean, we see in the States, there's such huge battles going on in uh, university and college campuses just around the right to be at the at the university, just for the right to identify as they are. There's so much at stake here. Yeah. And it's it's a really important thing to know because a lot of these have been misconstrued and there's a lot of very deliberate media tactics in the states that have been used to make it seem like oh these hippy dippy far left protest antifas they're they're crazy they want they're in the minority yeah Yeah, they're in the minority and it's just it's the thing you can do that absolutely makes students so mad is treating them like children like oh these fears are unjustified Oh, they have climate anxiety. Yeah. Right. I wonder where all the smoke in Toronto came from. Exactly. It's not, it's treating it's them. It's real. Exactly. Yeah. Treating them like their fears are rational because they have to live in a world that will still be here and will still have the effects after you've been gone. It's, JFK once said that he refuses to let the entire American public live on the accomplishments of a previous generation. And I think that's something that a lot of countries have been doing for a while, and we've been sitting on this wave of apathy on the bones of our forefathers who have actually fought for something, and now we're too scared to, you know, oh, get out and vote. Yeah, get out and vote. That's not all you have to do, though. You have to go into your community. You have to make a difference. It's I'm not putting the world on your shoulders. I'm saying clean up the trash around you actually try to make people's lives better. All right. And for the last word, where can we hear your incredible new podcast? Well, my new podcast will actually be airing live on CIUT. We're uncertain about the date yet, and the scheduling is still being figured out, but it will be 
available both live and in podcast form on this very website. Wonderful. Wonderful. We'll look forward to that. And we'll, we'll keep people informed about when it's going to be, too, so they can listen to it live, which is the best. Well, this is the Radical Reverend Show here at CIUT. 89.5 FM. I'm Christine Smaller, and I am the temp here while Sherry DeNovo is away. And stay tuned in because we've got lots of great shows ahead for you over the summer. Over the summer, we're going to have, next week, we're going to be talking about student journalism. Uh, and the week after that, I think we're going to be talking about the role of religion in revolutions. We've got the role of humor in revolutions coming up and a couple of really special shows I'm excited about. I know I was telling you, Riley, about it earlier. Um, the first one is Thanatology. We're going to be talking about all things death, including our society's resistance to just dealing with it and natural burial. And then we're also going to have a show where we speak to an expert on theology and how it intersects with artificial intelligence. Stay tuned for the next little bit, folks. Sounds good. We still have lots of shows coming. And if you're interested in more things, there's lots of other shows on this wonderful radio station. You can find all of them on demand on the website. And if you have ideas for this show, or if you have any comments that you want to make about anything that happens here, then please feel free to email me, uh, Reverend Christine Smaller. My email is revcsmaller at gmail.com. That's R-E-V as in Victor C. Smaller at gmail.com. We look forward to speaking with you next time. And I just want everyone to remember... Just because you can't solve all the world's problems today doesn't give you an excuse to not try and start to fix them. Preach, Riley, preach. Trouble so hard, don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, Trouble so hard. Ooh.